When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining. I have a video for you today that is, quite frankly, a bit different than my typical video. In fact, this is one that I'm debating whether or not I should release it publicly or keep it as a Patreon exclusive. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll figure that out. We'll see how it goes. But either way, what I want to talk about is a conversation I had over the weekend with a long-term friend of mine. There's a, a buddy of mine that I've been friends with for over a decade, and we spent some time together over the weekend, and I just caught up with him, saw how things were going, and I asked him how his investments were doing, right? I know that he likes investing in different things. He has a 401k, but his big interest, what he invests in, is the alternative assets, stuff like crypto, Bitcoin, altcoins, NFTs, all of that type of stuff. This realm of investing that I really have nothing to do with. I have none of these investments. They don't interest me all that much, but I listened to his thesis on them and I thought that was overall pretty enlightening. It was interesting. He went over the main core thesis of crypto, the fact that it will stabilize a lot of countries that aren't as stable, countries like Argentina that have incredible amounts of inflation. People want something that has stable, uh, you know, no inflation to anchor onto. So there's different thesis for crypto and the technology behind it. And he's more knowledgeable about that than I am. But part of the conversation swung back to me where he asked, why do you invest in stocks? Like, why do you like stocks so much? And I went on to explain why I not only like stocks, but I love stocks. And I think that they are by far the best investment that you can do on planet Earth beyond real estate, beyond altcoins, beyond gold, um, beyond bonds. I think stocks are the supreme pinnacle of investing. And I explained in, in a longer conversation why I thought that. So in this video, I want to go through and go through the examples that I gave because I saw that as we were going through this, he thought it was fascinating. Um, he thought it was a different way of explaining things that he hasn't seen before. And I want to go through some of the examples that I did. So let's go ahead and start off with why I love stocks, why I invest in them, why I think they're the best. We can look at every single investment and the way that I rate every investment is based against the risk-free rate. The risk-free rate is the treasury or the federal funds rate. It's where you can get risk-free returns. Right now, the risk-free rate is around 5%. So that is what the federal funds rate is at, and that's around the rate of a treasury bond. So let's say that that is the risk-free rate. Ultimately, we can right now invest at 5% or put our money in a mar money market account. We can put it in a high yield savings account and we can earn 5% risk-free. Now you can even lock in this risk-free rate for the next 20 years. So this is an opportunity over the next two decades to lock in this 5%. When I look at investing 
And again, this is a 20-year period, so we'll put 20 years up here. 20 years long, earning you 5% interest every single year. This is your opportunity cost. This is what I weigh every investment that I do. It's against this opportunity of risk-free money. Now, the reason that people look at this, and I think the reason that so many people are drawn to this, is because the predictability of returns. You know when you invest in a treasury and you lock it in for the next 20 years, the payout that you get will never go up and it'll never go down. If you buy a 20-year treasury, you're going to get the same amount of money every single year. So you can count on this. It's predictable. It's reliable. It gives investors a feeling of safety, um, a feeling of lack of risk taking this. And that's why it's the risk-free rate. Now, there's other things to consider. There's inflation, obviously, that eats away at some of this. So you might have like 2 to 3% inflation. So your real return is lower than 5%. It's the difference between inflation and the 5%, more like 2% per year. But for the sake of simplicity in this example, let's just pretend that there's no inflation and that you get a flat 5% return. Now, stocks in the U.S. Treasury have some similarities and they have some differences. The biggest difference is that with the U.S. Treasury, you know what you're getting. You can see it clear as day for the next 20 years exactly what your return will be because it's guaranteed by the government. It's written on the, the note that you get. The bond that you get tells you how much cash flow you're going to get every single year for the next 20 years. And it's flat. With stocks, the big difference is it's unknown. All you know with the stock is the starting yield. So we can look at the example of Apple and we can compare this to the U.S. Treasury. Apple right now has a starting free cash flow yield, which is just like the starting yield of a treasury, but Apple has a starting yield of 3.76%, 3.7. The treasury has a starting yield of 5%. So whether or not you buy Apple or the US treasury is based on these starting yields and the opportunity cost from one to the other. The treasury is a little bit more predictable. It's guaranteed. Apple's a company that faces competition. It's a bit less predictable or guaranteed, but Apple has the potential like every other stock to grow its cash flows over time. That is the largest distinguishing factor is Apple can grow its cash flows over time while the treasury can't. So let's assume for the sake of mathematical simplicity that we buy a stock that has a lower starting yield than the treasury. Let's say we buy one with a 3% starting yield. So it starts down here. Now, with every stock that I buy, my goal is to buy a stock that will grow its free cash flow per share at 15% per year. If you're a fan of the rule of 72, that's a mathematical tool you can use to see how often a number will double, a growth rate will double. If you plug in 15, that means that if something grows at 15% per year, it'll double every 4.8 years. So we can round up to five years. Basically, if you have a company that's growing its free cash flow per share at 15%, Around every five years, it's going to double its free cash flow per share. So let's assume that I'm trying to buy a stock that will grow its free cash flow per share at 15% per year, and it does it perfectly. It just grows its free cash flow per share at 15% per year. And let's also assume I buy that stock with a starting yield of 3%. We can map this out for the first five years. One, two, three, four, five. For the first four years this stock will earn less cash flow than the treasury. So the interest payments on the treasury starting at 5% will pay you more than the cash flows of this stock for the first five years. So right here, you have opportunity cost. You're losing money for the first four years. Only on year five are you making more money than the treasury. On year five, you're getting a 6% yield. Remember, because the cash flows doubled. So what you paid for it down here, you're getting a yield of 6% on the free cash flow on your five way out here.
Now, if you look at this just on a five-year timeline and you're trying to judge what was a better investment, uh, I probably think the treasury is. If you just had this isolated view of just five years, starting at 5% and earning the first four years of excess cash flow is better than earning less for the first four years and only earning more for one year that's five years out. But that's not where this stops. Remember, this is 20 years. We invest for 20 years. We don't invest for five years. The treasury is still locked in, paying the same amount of interest every single year, but a stock has the opportunity to continue growing. And this is the great thing about stocks. This is why I love them so much because they don't grow for five years. If you find a good company, it'll grow for year after year after year. Let's assume that this company grows for another 15% per year for the next five years from year five to 10. One, two, three, four, five. And we've reached year 10. The yield that you're paying today based on 10-year cash flows, the year 10 cash flows is 12%. That sounds quite a bit better. So cash flows on year 10, you're getting a 12% yield on them. And then all of these years, year uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, you're earning excess cash over what you would have on year 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 of the treasury. So when we're measuring this against the risk-free rate, the US treasury, many people are buying the treasury today Trillions of dollars buying up treasuries. Many people have so much savings stuck in money market accounts, earning 5%. And especially if you lock in a 20-year treasury, you're earning that yield, that same payment every single year. With the stock, you're going into the unknown. You might have to pay a little bit more. You might have a lower yield starting off. You might earn less the first four years. But if you find a good one and it grows its free cash flow 15% per year, every year after year uh, four, it's earning more money. And every subsequent year that it grows its free cash flow per share, you're earning more and more than the previous year. This is where that incredible, that incredible principle of compounding comes into play. And many people underestimate this. They're very short-term focused. They want safety and short-termism. They're focused on the starting yield of 5% that's higher than 3%. So they pour money into the treasuries and they forego the opportunity to have these incredible stocks that grow free cash flow every year. And you might not think the companies can do this, grow free cash flow per share 15% per year, but I can show you many examples. There's many companies that I know that have done this in the past. Let's assume that right now, year 10, we're only halfway through this journey. Remember, we have another 10 years to go to get through a 20-year investment horizon. Well, in this case, we know what the treasury is going to do. It's going to pay you the exact same amount that it did year one. There's no increase or decrease in cash flow. But let's assume that this is a great stock. It's a compounding machine and it's just compounding and doing buybacks and growing organically, doing price hikes. It has a nice moat and monopoly and it grows another 15% per year, which would double the free cash flow per share in another five years. So we have year 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. The yield that we would get on year 15's free cash flow is 24%. That seems absurd, but that is accurate. And the years of cash flow that you're getting in excess of the, uh, the treasury, year 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, is obscenely high. It's way more than you're getting when you're buying the treasury for those years. So as you go out and the company's growing cash flows, now this company, it's, it's way more cash flows than you're getting um, with the treasury that has the fixed cash flow. Now, another way of stating this, which I think is even more crazy to think about, and this is something that I think is mind blowing, is if you bought the company with a 24% yield on 15 year cash flows, 
So 15 years out, it has a 24% yield on those cash flows. That means that the cash flows on year 15 are enough to buy back the entire market cap that you're paying for the company today every four years. So this amount of cash flow would pay back on your starting valuation of the company every four years. Because the math is pretty simple. If you assume we have a 25% yield, we round up to a 25, that means that if something costs you $100 and it produces $25 worth of cash flow every year, it can buy back the entire thing in only four years. Now, if we look at this again, you might think that that's absurd. And there's no company doing this. There's no company growing at this rate. There are many doing this. We can again look at the example of Apple. Um, we have Apple here, and let me go ahead and just show you some incredible statistics about this company. First of all, we can look at the free cash flow per share. I'll bring it up right here. In 2023, if you can see this, it says that the free cash flow per share that Apple produced was $6.33. Remember that number, $6.33. Now we go to Apple's stock price. We go back uh, about 15 years around that time period, maybe around 2014 and 15. Apple was trading for around $26, $25 a share. This is when Warren Buffett was buying it. So Apple is trading at $24 to $25 per share. Now we have six. Remember, 6.3 is what it's producing last year in free cash flow. And the company, the whole company cost $24 15 years ago. 6, 12, 18, 24. The free cash flow on a per share basis could have bought the entire company of Apple in four years, 15 years ago. Another way of illustrating this, which I think is a, another interesting viewpoint, is we can just look at the total free cash flow. Apple generated last year $100 billion of free cash flow. We can look at the market cap. If we had the market cap pulled up here, the market cap around 2014 and 2015 was around 400 to 500 billion, meaning that the cash flow the company produces every year today, $100 billion, is enough to buy the entire company in four years, 15 years ago, which would mean that it trades at a 24% yield on 15 years cash flows. That's exactly the yield that Apple trades at. Over a 15-year period, it grew its free cash flow per share to the point where it had a 24% yield 15 years out. Apple's an example of a company that's done this, and that's why the shareholders like Warren Buffett have trounced the market. They've trounced the risk-free rate. They've crushed other investors. He's made hundreds of billions of dollars on this one investment. Now, he didn't know perfectly with certain clarity that it would produce 15% free cash flow growth every year, but he knew it was going to grow really fast, much faster than the market. He understood the opportunity cost. Warren Buffett understands compounding. That's why he's so biased towards stocks. That's why he loves owning stocks that will grow their free cash flow per year every single year. And Apple's not the only example. There's many companies we can look at in plain sight, ones that you know about that are doing this. Look at Visa, for example. If you think Apple is just an outlier and one in a million and it's an extreme example of survivorship bias, we can take a look at Visa. Everyone knows about Visa. Everyone uses Visa. It's grown its free cash flow per share at 25% for the past decade, 12% for the past five years. So a little bit lower for the past five years, 18% for the past two years. So somewhere between 12 to 17%, that's right in line with this example. Visa is another one. We also have MasterCard. MasterCard's another company that has done this. We also have Costco. Costco, everybody knows this company. You probably have a membership there. We can look at Costco's free cash flow per share, and over the past decade, it's 17% above this example. So if you're saying this is extreme, Costco has beat it. 
A company that I've invested in for seven years has beat this example, and over the past five years, it's grown at 19%. That's really trounced this example. So Costco is not only doing this, it's doing it at a higher speed. And again, this isn't something where it's, it's survivorship bias or looking at only few companies. Many of the companies that we know and understand are doing this. We can again look at Google. Google's a company that everyone uses on almost a daily basis. Who doesn't have a Gmail account? Who's not on YouTube? You're all on YouTube right now listening to this. Google has a free cash flow per share growth over the past decade of 20.5%. It would be faster than this example, a better investment than this. If we look at Google's free cash flow per share over the past five years, it's 27%. It's growing at a staggering rate. And there's other examples I can list, I can continue on. This isn't just survivorship bias, but it's a small pool of companies that are compounding machines. They have the economics, the moat, the pricing power to continually do this. Companies like FICO and Chipotle and the railroads and so many of them that are growing their free cash flow around 13 to 17%. So what I try to do is I try to look for companies that will grow their free cash flow per share at 15%. And then the hard part is trying to get into these great companies at a half decent starting yield. We don't wanna to go too low with the starting yield because if you get down to 2%, if you get down to 1%, even if they grow fast, you're starting at such a disadvantage that it takes a long time for it to surpass or even get past the point of the risk-free rate. So you don't wanna to buy too expensive. That's a price even high quality investors make is they pay too much. I'd rather start at 4%. If I could get 1% below the risk-free rate, and have it grow at 15%, then I'll be, uh, you know, that's a way better opportunity for me, in my opinion. And I'd love to even get a starting yield above the risk-free rate. What if you could start at 6% and have a company grow free cash flow per share, 15% per year? Obviously, that's dramatically undervalued. That company would be an incredible deal. And in some cases, that happens. It happens infrequently, it happens rarely, and it happens when a high-quality compounding machine gets sold off temporarily. So there's some examples of this happening. Again, it's, it's a rare thing. You have to look out for it. But I think those are the best situation where you can find a stock that will grow and grow and grow its free cash flow per share. And it starts at a yield of around 5% where the treasury's at or even above it. That's an incredible deal when you can find them. I'll give you one example of that happening. It happened recently with Netflix. If we look at Netflix, this is some staggering information. I find this so, so interesting. Netflix obviously had like a, you know, there's a lot of people that were scared about the company. It sold off because competition was coming at it and it went down 70%, which that number doesn't matter. If you're an investor, don't look at how much the company sold off for or what it used to trade for. Just look at the price it's selling at. In 2022, Netflix was at below $200 per share. At that share price, Netflix had a market cap of $80 billion. That was the cost of the entire thing. You could have bought all of Netflix, 100% of it, for $80 billion. So if you're buying a share of the company, you're buying it at an $80 billion valuation. Now, keep that number in mind. If we look at Netflix's free cash flow in 2023, it had free cash flows of $7 billion. So... In 2022, you could have bought the, the company for $80 billion, and then in 2023, it had free cash flows of $7 billion. 7 divided by 80 is roughly 9%. That is the yield you are getting on this company, buying it here and having the cash flows one year later. 
So investors that bought it at the low at an $80 billion valuation were getting a 9% yield on 2023's year, uh, year's free cash flow. If we look at this, it's as if you started, and we can clear this out. I'll clear this out to make it a little bit easier to look at. Let's clear out this example here. And let's look at Netflix as the example here on what investors were getting compared against the risk-free rate. Investors that were buying Netflix in 2022 were getting a 9% yield on 2023's cash flows. So they had zero cash flows for the first year of their investment. They didn't earn anything. They had to be patient and wait one year. But then immediately after one year, the starting yield was 9%, all the way up here. And they own a company that's presumably going to grow its free cash flow per share in the future and go up over time to even make the difference bigger. Now, if you had perfect clarity of the future and you had these two choices presented in front of you, you could either invest in the treasury with a 5% yield, or you can invest in Netflix that has a 0% yield on year one, but then it goes to 9% year two. And after that, it will grow every single year. The choice becomes very obvious. Everyone would choose to invest in this thing that has a starting yield of 9% after year one, because you're only sacrificing one year of cash flow to instantly almost double your cash flow every subsequent year for the next 19 years. This is obviously a much better deal. It's like a double the better deal, right? Triple it. Once it became clear that Netflix can generate $7 billion worth of cash flows, investors realized, oops, it was selling at a 9% yield back here. That doesn't seem right. Buy, buy, buy. And they pot the stock like crazy. It went up well over 150% in the following year. So Netflix recovered in price because investors became aware of this bigger picture, right? They couldn't see the future a year ago, but investors that could have an idea of the future or what Netflix could potentially generate in free cash flow, and they bought it during that time period, they were buying these cash flows at a 9% yield. And that's why the stock went up 150%. Now, I realize that I'm not going to find companies like Netflix that have that 9% starting yield on next year's cash flows. That is super rare. Those happen occasionally and frequently. And hopefully I take advantage of them when they happen. But on a more common basis, what I'm trying to find are the companies that have a higher starting free cash flow yield close to the treasury of maybe 4%, 4.5% around there, as close as I can get, or even a little bit above, that also have incredibly bright futures that are growing their free cash flow per share at 15% per year, that will quickly surpass the opportunity cost of the treasury. And that's what I've been focusing on in my portfolio. I know I'm going to make mistakes. Not every company I buy is going to be a winner. There's going to be losers. But if I buy a basket of like 12 to 15 of them, and hopefully most of them do pretty well and grow their free cash flow per share, 12 to 18% over time, overall, the portfolio will have incredible outperformance of this opportunity cost. It'll do really well over time. So that is a, a glimpse. I'd say a nice little overview of how I view valuation. Now, again, I want to stress just one last time. You're looking at a lot of companies that I think are, are dangerous in their valuation. We have companies like NVIDIA that have below a 1% starting free cash flow yield. That's fine if they can grow their free cash flow at an insane rate, which they're doing right now. But just notice the difference they have to make up to get to the point where they're at the risk-free rate. It has to grow its free cash flow 100% to get to 2%, and then another 100% to get to 4%, and then another 100% to get past it to 8%. So you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of percentages of free cash flow growth just to get above the risk-free rate. That's why I think companies like NVIDIA and ones that are incredibly high priced 
they're a little bit riskier. Those are not the ones I'm going into. The companies that I'm buying, the companies I'm looking for, I'm looking for that sweet spot of 3.5%, 4%, and growing quite nicely. Those are the ones that I'm targeting. And overall, this is why I just love stocks. There's really nothing else like it. There's never been an asset class that's outperformed it. It's been the best performing asset class ever over the past 100 years. And even real estate, other great asset classes have major disadvantages. It's illiquid. With stocks, you can change your mind. If you make a mistake, that's fine. Just sell the company and, and swap it for another one. With real estate, you can't really do that. You're, you're putting big down payments. You have to deal with tenants. You have to deal with managing managing teams. You have to deal with lawsuits and squatters and all sorts of challenges with real estate. But with stocks, you can sit here. You can do analysis from the comfort of your own home. And you have the potential to earn tremendous amounts of alpha and tremendous amounts of compounding and gains if you construct a smart portfolio of great companies that trade at reasonable valuations and grow their cash flows quickly. So to me, stocks are the best. I think they are the best investment, hands down, nothing comes close. That's my thoughts. I hope you enjoyed this little insight. I'm sorry that's a bit different than my normal video, but I thought it was interesting, thought I would share. That's all for now. See you in the next one.